This is hell. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. And when it comes to the end of the world, I really don't want that annihilation, that Armageddon, that apocalypse to be ushered in by the likes of J.D. Vance, the U.S. Senator from Ohio, who is also the author of what turns out to be a very, very disturbing book, Hillbilly Elegy, despite being uh, receiving bipartisan support and acclaim when it was released in the summer of 2016 during the Hillary Clinton-Donald Trump campaign for the presidency. Since then, many liberals have been surprised by Vance's rightward shift, including his support for Trump's bid for the presidency. But as our guest today will point out, many observers were not surprised when Vance went all MAGA. After all, his book does blame poverty on the poor and their terrible decisions and choices that lead to intergenerational impoverishment. It's the kind of analysis neoliberals love. Blame the poor for their lot in life. And let's just move on from this whole ridiculousness. That's the way capitalism works. There are winners, there are losers, and your choices determine what category you fall within. Nothing else but your own personal individual choices. Now lift yourself up by the bootstraps, physical impossibility, and put your nose to the grindstone, although I don't know why you would want to inflict self-harm, and get down to the hard work you must do to be fairly rewarded for your production. And if you still don't get what you sorely deserve, then it must not be your fault after all. And it can't be capitalism's fault because even the suggestion of a structural analysis of the market is downright un-American. So it must be something else, something you also cannot control, which means all of your problems are probably caused by a globalist cabal of liberal elites who are behind a massive worldwide conspiracy to control all of our lives. Or, as our guest describes it, a globalist conspiracy resulting not from any inner logic of capital, but from the corrupt decisions of politicians and financiers. Returning to This Is Hell today is historian Gabriel Winant, who posted the N Plus One magazine article, J.D. Vance Changes the Subject, a Senator from the Unconscious. Gabriel is assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago. His writing about work, inequality, and capitalism in modern America has appeared in places like The Nation, The New Republic, Dissent, and, of course, N Plus One. Before coming to the University of Chicago, Gabriel was a visiting scholar at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He was on the show back in July of 2021 to discuss his then-just-published book, which is a must-read, especially in this age of COVID. The book is titled The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. You can find that interview right now by going to thisishell.com and searching on Winant and like all of the interviews at our website, it's free. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, what is new by you? Are your folks still in town? Uh, they left yesterday morning, so it was quite quiet around the house yesterday. So party, party, party all last night? Oh, totally. Uh, <laughs> yeah, went to bed early. Yeah, exactly, because you know. you're wore out from having uh, your folks in town. Yep, they're lovely company, but I'm, I'm used to uh, 
not much company. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. This is what the reasons I like to go on vacation with my family is we each get a separate cabin that is separate from each other and a distance away from each other. Nice. So you get the privacy, but if you want to see each other, you can. So, yeah. That's a great arrangement. It is. It really works out well. So I'm in full panic mode despite the fact that I'm supposed to be going on a weekend getaway so I can freaking relax. In order for me to get any time away from the show, I have to go through what I bet you have to go through, what almost all my friends say they have to go through to get any time away from work at all, and that is... Make up for all the work you will miss by working far harder and far more right before stepping away, even for a moment, and then when you return to the job, all of that work that is piled up will be waiting for you again, so more hours of work for you, not uh, for you despite taking time off from work, because you took time off from work, you have to work more. Vacation nowadays means more work. So exactly how is that a vacation of any sort? Under neoliberalism, the vacation has become extinct, just like pensions and affordable health care. Dinosaurs of a past prior to the religion of individualism took hold here in the States. Will, more important than me taking a break for a moment in a world that no longer allows us to even catch a breath, Please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, why is this hell? Uh, I'll tell you why this is hell, because vacations don't exist. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. This is the this is hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your message or your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can email it to thisishellradio at gmail.com during today's show. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show. But no Jeff Dorchin this week. Uh, there's currently a technical difficulty that is keeping us from connecting with Jeff. And that difficulty in connecting is... Jeff would much rather do the moment he had prepared for this week, next week, because I've done a terrible job of managing time on this week's show, so it's all my fault. We are only 66 days away from the annual This Is Hell listener appreciation and anniversary party and art show called This Is Art, and this year we are celebrating our 27th year on air at WNUR. 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment, where we started broadcasting way back in 1996 and began streaming and podcasting to the entire world in 2001, four days after 9-11, when we had the very first live interview with Noam Chomsky following the events of 9-11. We are now on a second outlet here in the Chicago area, as well as stations in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, Moscow, Idaho and in London and the UK just uh, join us in celebrating uh, 27 years on air on Saturday July 22nd beginning at 3pm at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon Avenue but you're probably wondering that's not until July we still got a couple of months why mention it now 
First, listeners may want to make travel plans, and we have had many people join us from all over the world and as far away as freaking Scotland. Making those kinds of arrangements can be difficult, and it takes a lot of time. Second, because we want to make certain you mark Saturday, July 22nd, 3 p.m., Carrie's Lounge, This Is Hell Party, in your calendar now. Third, this is a listener appreciation party with music, art, food, and a raffle. So if you are a musician who would like to play our party or are in a band that would like to perform, contact me at chuck at thisishell.com with a sample of your music. Remember, you will be playing while people are talking, drinking, and partying, so you got to be cool with that. Or if you know a musical act that would be perfect for the party, send your suggestion again to chuck at thisishell.com. If you're an artist or know an artist that you believe would be a perfect fit for the annual This Is Art opening and show, send a sample of your work or your suggested artist's work. Artists, we do not take any commission. 100% of all sales go directly to the artists because this is about listener appreciation. Finally, if you have something you would like to donate, so we can put it in the raffle and give it out as a prize. Send your suggestion and an image of the potential prize to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. That's Saturday, July 22nd, the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. And we already have had some prizes donated. First, there was the Tessa Collective that sent us a card game called Space Cats Fight Fascism. And who knows? Maybe it can be yours if you join us for the raffle during our upcoming party on Saturday, July 22nd. And we just received another donation this week. Sisyphus. Yes, Sisyphus took a break from his daily toil and emailed us at chuckatthisishell.com writing, Hi Chuck and Hellions, I heard the announcement of the upcoming anniversary fundraising event and mention of an unlikely board game as raffle prize. I wonder if you'd welcome that donation of another weird board game for your raffle. I own the 1984, that's the perfect year for this game. I own the 1984 edition of Class Struggle, Game of Life in Capitalist America. It's in good condition, complete, and would be pleased to contribute it if you think it might generate interest and sell a few raffle tickets. If not, that's okay too. Your fan in Orange County, California, Sisyphus. And if I had to guess a place where Sisyphus would be pointlessly toiling, I would guess Orange County, California. Thanks, Sisyphus. And we definitely accepted Sisyphus's donation. And we are looking forward to receiving the game in the mail and raffling it off at this year's party. Coming up, J.D. Vance and the ideology he represents are freaking nightmares. Will shares more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We will also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. We'll tell you what's happening next week here on this is hell. Noam Chomsky called this is hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly Noam's gone insane. This is hell. And if there is something that can make anyone insanely angry it's a close reading or close listening to the words of u.s senator from ohio jd vance while contradicting himself vance seems to be telling his story which is much like the story of many americans and that is in order to cope with the world they must avoid any structural analysis of capitalism are there problems in our world sure 
Is it caused by capitalism? Maybe, but capitalism is above criticism, as doing so would be un-American. So there must be some other inexplicable reason things don't work out for everyone in the market, like a conspiracy theory about a cabal of globalist elitists controlling everything behind the scenes. Here to help us have a better understanding of Senator Vance and what he represents returning to This Is Hell. We are very happy to have back on the show historian Gabriel Winan, who posted the N Plus One article, J.D. Vance Changes the Subject, a senator from the unconscious. You might remember Gabriel being on our show back in July of 2021 to discuss his then-just-published book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. That was chosen by listeners to be replayed at the end of 2021. One is one of their favorite interviews to be featured on the show that year. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Gabriel. Thanks for having me back. Nice to be here. Great to have you on the show. This article blew my mind, and that's because I do everything I can to ignore J.D. Vance. So now I have to read an article about J.D. Vance, and I see why I shouldn't be ignoring him. You describe J.D. Vance as a totem of the forgotten and abandoned people in whose likenesses refashioned into exploitative grotesques he trafficked. He got money going to work in the fascist wing of Silicon Valley for Peter Thiel, making millions and then becoming a vulturous financier in his own right. The venture capital firm he started, Naria, named after some Tolkien BS in the Thiel house style, invests in companies that aim to monetize Catholic prayer, obstruct environmentally conscious equities trading, further militarize outer space, and consolidate agricultural production, squeezing out the country's remaining small farmers. So how can he both be a likeness of the forgotten and abandoned and then forget and abandon those who actually are like small farmers? How obvious are his contradictions between likeness and action? And why are those not obvious to his supporters? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's helpful here to to try to get past the tempting idea of seeing someone like Vance as simply a hypocrite and try to understand instead, uh, understand that he's diseased. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, uh, right, or to see what what would be kind of easily described as hypocrisies instead as symptoms. Um, So, you know, the thing that struck me in going back over Vance's whole public record from when he first became famous now almost eight years ago um was that he his book although his book his memoir hillbilly elegy which made him famous is sort of supposedly uh, a searing look at his childhood trauma uh and you know how he overcame what is genuinely a difficult childhood um he actually never really looked squarely at it in the whole book um, and there are just, you know, page after page after page of it. If you read it closely, you'll see he starts to describe something going on for himself or his mom, who's kind of the main villain of the book, um, or his family or his community growing up in uh, Ohio. And he'll try to kind of get into, well, what might be some of the causes of some of these traumas I experienced? And then without fail, every single time, He'll say, oh, maybe there's a structural cause. I don't know. Let's move on. Um, and because what he wants to do instead is uh, then put the blame on an identifiable person. And, you know, in the book, that's largely his mom who kind of stands in for what he sees as the pathologies of the white working class in general. Um, 
you know, won't stay in a marriage, addicted to drugs, doesn't work hard enough. These are, that's his analysis. He wants to put the blame on individual choices like that. Uh, and then more recently in his career, he wants to put the blame on, you know, George Soros, globalist Jewish billionaires, you know, people who are uh, trying to pack our country full of immigrants, Joe Biden, you know, scheming to exterminate white people, different versions of this. Um, but either way, right, whether it's kind of putting the blame on the victims earlier in his career or putting the blame on kind of like shadowy uh, malevolent conspirators more recently, uh, he's kind of repeating the move that a kid does who has experienced a difficult trauma. Uh, like why, you know, and it doesn't have tools for understanding it. Like, why did the mean person do the bad thing to me? Right. Um, and uh, in that way, he kind of presents all of the harm that has been done to America and working class people, uh, he presents it and kind of seems to understand it and to be encouraging the rest of us to understand it as unprocessed trauma, right? As something that actually can't be understood, uh, that can't be explained, that can only cause you to kind of channel your rage in some dire one direction or another. So do you think that that feeds into his interest in conspiracy theories that he's trying to find some something like his childhood that's something that can't be processed something that cannot be figured out yeah i mean i should say normally i would i would kind of hesitate to uh you know psychoanalyze someone who i actually have met him but someone who i don't really know um right that's not generally not good practice but i think with vance we kind of have to do it uh one we have to do it because his own whole narrative of himself is a kind of psychological narrative uh, there's no way of understanding who he is and what he's all about if you won't engage with psychological questions, because that's what made him famous. Um, you know, in his, as he imagined it, how, you know, uh, how people from difficult circumstances like himself can kind of overcome the psychological burdens that that they that they, you know, inherited. Um, and two, you know, he left us a long, long record. Uh, in which he says a lot of things about how he thinks about the world that he is constantly accidentally telling you things that he doesn't realize he's saying. Um, and yeah, it seems to me like, um, you know, Vance is interested basically in what I describe in the essay as a false class war. Uh, he describes it sometimes as class conflict. But the, the the parties to this class conflict are not, you know, labor and capital, right? The parties that someone on the left would identify as the parties to class conflict. Instead, they are the basically white citizens of America, more or less explicitly, on the one side, and what he would call elites on the other side, meaning journalists, professors, um, you know, people in Hollywood, et cetera. And uh, the only the only real way that that kind of holds up, the, the only real way that that makes sense is um, if you are not actually interested in understanding why the you know harms have been done to your community that have been done if you're not actually interested in explaining them if you're not interested in identifying what you could do about them and if instead what you're interested in doing is uh having a place to put blame 
right? Which is a very like we all know this from our own lives, right? It's, bl- finding someone to blame is not always the same thing as actually understanding why something is happening, uh, and that is the choice. I mean, that's the choice advance really represents. Is don't we don't actually need to explain what's happening? We just need to pin blame some blame somewhere. You mentioned how he does not like elites, supposedly, within his rhetoric, but it seems like elites love him. You write of Vance's relationship with the working class. It bespeaks the intellectual and political barrenness of elite liberalism that so many people and institutions, the agent and publisher who got him in print, the Yale faculty who advanced his career, the journalists at outlets like Vox and the New York Times who reviewed him favorably, the politicians like Hillary Clinton, who praised his work, failed to see what he was doing straight away. In fact, many liberals, uh, many liberal people I know and love who are self-described liberals and huge Hillary Clinton fans praised Hillbilly Elegy, suggesting that I read it. But before I could, we had historian Liz Cat on the show to talk about an article she had at Salon.com called The Liberal Shaming of Appalachia. What should praise for Vance's work reveal to us about elite liberalism? What can we learn about elite liberalism from that support for Vance and his work? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, there was great enthusiasm for Hillbilly Elegy, uh, in, in those circles, because here was, you know, a son of the hard pressed, you know, heartland white working class here to tell us about how uh, what families like his have gone through is essentially their own fault. And that right, that's the message of the book. It's unmistakable. Um, it's, it's quite, quite explicit, in fact, that it's our own fault. Um, and the only way to overcome it is kind of through willpower and that's sort of Vance's story about himself that he uh he be you know because of the support of his grandmother basically uh was able to kind of muster the willpower to escape he became a marine uh he goes to Ohio State and then Yale um and you know that was a very attractive story for uh liberals who also are not interested in um really situating working class people in any important historic role, not seeing them as having any possible collective power, uh, right? And instead see them as a kind of problem to be managed. So there came Vance to say, you're right, this is a problem to be managed. Um, And he was celebrated enormously for that. And it's just one of the many moments of the last, you know, 10 or so years of our history where liberals are complicit in the emergence of fascism, not deliberately, right? But that their um, their kind of way of thinking and acting about um, rising social inequality in our country uh, actually kind of clears the pathway for far-right politics to emerge. So liberals may have been surprised when Vance announced his support for Donald Trump during his presidential campaign in 2016. Were you surprised? And if you were not, what signs did liberals miss about Vance being on the far right? Or did they not miss any signs that, in fact, neoliberalism aligns very much with the far right in blaming the poor for their poverty? Right. Uh, So Vance went through this famous kind of supposed transformation, right, in which he he was a kind of never Trump policy, never Trump figure in 2015, 16, maybe into 17. I can't remember exactly when the transition starts. 
um, and he describes Trump as being like, initially he describes Trump as being like the drugs that people in his community, you know, are addicted to. In other words, this is a kind of quick and easy fix, uh, makes you feel good rather than causing you to confront your real problems. Uh, your real problem being that you don't want to work hard or something like that. Um, that was his line initially. Uh, and then over the course of the Trump administration, he kind of aligned himself more and more with it. Uh, and when he ran for Senate, he had to kind of explicitly disavow his earlier position and say, oh, I was wrong about Trump. Um, and then kind of grovel before Trump for his support, which he got eventually. Uh, in fact, Trump, quite funnily, um, when he was campaigning for Vance in, in Ohio, uh, said at a Vance rally uh, something to the effect of, J.D. wants my my support so bad, he, he won't stop kissing my ass. Um, right, right in front of it. Um, so, you know, this became this question for, I think, a lot of both liberals and kind of, you know, um, sort of never Trump Republicans. So, you know, what, what happened to this guy? How could he, you know, he'll just say anything. He'll, you know, he just totally lied and reinvented himself. And it's certainly true that he'll say anything and lies constantly. Um but I think that is a uh, story to let yourself off the hook for being compelled by Vance's earlier shtick uh, in, you know, around the time of his book and represents a failure to see what he was doing all along because the story uh, or the kind of method of doling out blame in the way that he was interested in doing in Hillbilly Elegy, doling out blame, pinning it on white working class people themselves is an important kind of racism to how he goes about that too, which we can talk more about. Um, that's the same thing he's still doing. He sort of shifted who he blames a little bit, right? And so he does not, he's less interested now in blaming, you know, his family and people like them. He's more interested in blaming kind of shadowy billionaires. Um, but basically he's still interested in a story about white working class misery being caused by kind of like non-system by individual choices that are not really systematically explicable and if they're not really systematically explicable they can't really be systematically combated there's no real questions of solidarity that that they are that they should cause you to think about uh and that was true then and that's true now and that was the thing that liberals couldn't see because liberals are also not really interested in finding the sort of the possible kind of sites of solidarity for struggling against capitalism you quote Vance at the 2019 National Cons Conservatism uh, Conference integrating a semi-tacit white nationalism with the rights anti-abortion program by saying, our people aren't having enough children to replace themselves. That should bother us. That line should bother us. You write of Vance uh, connecting white nationalism with anti-abortion beliefs when the Washington Post's Ari M. Brostoff pointed out this connection at the time, the far right and the center right. Uh, never Trump types forced the Post to issue a correction and delete Brostoff's lines linking his uh, pronatalism to white supremacy, one of many instances of the contemptible complacence with which the political establishment received Vance during the long rightward shift he took over the course of the 2010s. How complacent do you believe the press has been in the rise of the extreme right here in the United States and its electoral success, including Vance securing a seat in the U.S. Senate? And what do you, oh, it's just, what, you, do know, you what, I, what do you explains that complacency? It's again and again and again. You know, I mean, even just now, I, I, I don't know if you just saw um, Elon Musk 
uh, was just, you know, he's been tweeting like a neo-Nazi for the last, you know, few weeks at least, uh, you know, about the racial, the propensity of different racial groups to commit crimes, their IQ levels. He was just compared um, George Soros uh, to Magneto, right? The X-Men villain who is also a, uh, you know, survivor of, a, I mean, fictionally, a survivor of a Nazi concentration camp. Um, right. And the kind of story of his trauma by the Nazis is like important to the villain story, I'm told. And so, uh, you know, someone was interviewing uh, uh, Musk and on CNBC, I think, and asked him, are you anti-Semite? And he says, oh, no, if anything, I'm a pro-Semite. Um, and it's just like, you know, these people, you can just like, if you can just come out with the most unbelievable kind of river of basically fascist ideas just all of the time and maybe a reporter will say hey are you racist and you can just say no and they'll say oh okay um that's true with trump on the cnn town hall last week or whatever right uh where they kind of go you know cnn just gives trump like a huge amount of free airtime um you know has a kind of goes through the motion oh we're going to fact check him as though uh you know, they're going to be able to do that in any effective or compelling way uh, that at all counteracts the fact that they're just, you know, giving him a mic as they've done again and again and again for the last 10 years. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, basically the mainstream press just has learned no lessons from the experience of the last decade in which as Trump himself has said many times, right, him and his kind of politics, they, they're good for ratings. They, they're, you know, it's good television. Um, and uh, the press is just totally ill-equipped for really confronting uh, the rise of far-right politics that's just like completely unconcerned with any kind of honesty, you know, being in touch with reality in any way. And I don't need to say like, um, you know, oh, I'm for like a fact-based objectivity or something like that, because all politicians and all politics involves, you know, pushing narratives and been struggling over, there's no objective reality or something that the press can simply represent. But uh, figures like Van, I mean, Vance just like lies constantly. Just everything he says is a lie, basically. Um, and you just wouldn't know that from being a regular person in Ohio tuning into the TV or radio periodically. You also point out that uh, were we really to believe that Vance's years of enthusiastic fraternizing with neo-fascists like Thiel and Curtis Yarvin left him uninfluenced by the concerns that preoccupy those circles, such as the comparative IQ scores of various demographic groups or their relative propensity for crime. That Vance's zest for high birth rates is unrelated to the eugenics increasingly prevalent on the tech industry's far right wing. As we discussed on the show with Malcolm Harris uh, several weeks ago when we talked about his new book, Palo Alto, you add that when he used the words replace and our people, he did so innocently only to repeat the argument more forcibly on the campaign trail, you ask. So is Vance at the leading edge of that tech industry, eugenics-focused far-right movement? Is that the direction the Republican Party is going in the direction toward the tech industry's, te industry's far-right wing where eugenics are increasingly prevalent? Uh, I do think that there is a kind of faction on the right 
with Teal as its kind of main uh, brains and also its wallet that, you know, in its kind of Silicon Valley tech industry incarnation, I mean, it's basically Nazism, to be honest, you know, I mean, it's like, you get a little whiff of what these people are talking about. And it's, you know, it's about uh, how only some, you know, some people need to have more babies so that they kind of change the overall composition of the human species. It's about, um, you know, the like, as in the quote you read, how, you know, some kinds of people are more naturally criminal, some kinds of people are more naturally intelligent, other kinds are more naturally unintelligent. It's just, you know, this is just biological racism combined with political authoritarianism. We don't need to pretend it's something we've never seen before, right? <laughs> um, and, um, you know, it it's a real presence in, in, you know, the kind of now mainstream Republican politics to the point that Teal, two of his kind of personal protégés, Vance and also Blake Masters in Arizona, uh, won comp- very competitive Republican Senate primaries in uh, 2022, and one of them won the general election, Vance. Um, I think, you know, there's going to be continuing factional politics on the right. Teal doesn't call all the shots. He's just one major power player. Um, but I think that, you know, Trump endorsing Vance, right, that was a kind of moment of of a lot of solidifying the alliance between his his faction and, and Teal's faction. And Vance has turned around and endorsed Trump already for, for the 2024 race. Um, so I think, you know, that that alliance is solidifying and we should pay close attention and be very nervous about that, right? That there is a faction of very wealthy, very powerful people who, right, control a seat in the Senate, other political positions, huge amounts of wealth and resources uh are you know in the circle of the former and possibly future president who if you read what they actually write and talk about they don't believe i mean peter Thiel's very explicit about this all the time doesn't think democracy is good doesn't think we should have it uh the people who he's close to and the kind of thinkers he keeps around um sometimes openly call themselves fascists um and uh you know they are doing their best to not only take over political positions, but to either take over or shut down uh, unfriendly forms of media and press. So Teal famously sued out of existence the online publication Gawker because it wrote uh, it wrote a story about him that he didn't like. Um, and uh, Elon Musk, who is also a part of this circle, and it also is constantly, as I was saying, airing very similar kinds of uh, ideas about, uh, you know, intrinsic racial inequalities and so on. Elon Musk also has just bought Twitter, right? One of the kind of major media uh, systems in the world and is basically remaking it in his own image. He just, you know, has brought Tucker Carlson on to have to have a show on Twitter. Uh, he, if you look at Twitter now, almost any, you know, any, any major post, all the top replies to it uh, are all like, far right accounts because the way he's read on the algorithm promotes those. And so, you know, this is like an actual threat to take over our public sphere. And again, you know, I don't think you get that impression very clearly from mainstream media, which are just acting like everything is fine. 
And you'd think they'd be interested in uh, covering this because it's their competition. You also point out, here is Vance, all bewilderment, joylessness, and thoughtless cruelty caked over with some of the cheapest mythology on the market. He identifies with the copy-pasted Appalachiana, Hatfields and McCoys, the boisterous Scots-Irish spirit of loyalty, hard-working and hard-drinking and hard-fighting small-town folk with hearts of gold. You add that as James Baldwin observed, when a white American sees the world as cowboys and Indians, dauntless American troops and pretty white girls, he inhibits himself from knowing anything about anyone else, or for that matter, himself, where he comes from, who he is, why he does these things he does. And you point out that this self-inhibition is the unconscious message that hillbilly elegy communicates on every page, and it remains what Vance is all about. He is the senator from the unconscious a voice in Washington for unprocessed trauma, psychic repression, and the monstrous outlet outlets such potent forces can find. So is, Sen- is Vance the senator for those who are doing everything they can to stop themselves from recognizing who they are other than some myth? Is Vance the representative of all those who are lashing out as at others due to their own unwillingness to understand themselves outside of those myths yes i mean i think uh you know all of us have unconscious lives unconscious drives of different kinds that's not unique to him the question is to what degree you know is a person able to uh look at themselves and kind of think about what are the forces that have made you um right why do you do the things you do where do your ideas come from they don't just sort of pop into your head from nothing right you don't just want the things you want for no reason um and to be i think a kind of uh mature and self-conscious and grown person is to be able to answer questions like that uh it's just true for anyone that's like a way of thinking about you know uh psychological well-being and i think vance's story is a story of someone who has not been able to do that has not been willing to do that uh has gone through a kind of pantomime of pretending to do it right that's what the book is but then if you read it closely, you realize he's never doing it. And he's constantly telling like a baby story about himself instead. Um, and uh, that kind of like that kind of fake uh, self-examination and fake self-disclosure. I don't know if you have any friends who are therapists who've ever described a patient like this to you, uh, but it's a very hard symptom to treat when somebody's kind of pretending to be interested in self-examination, but won't actually ever do it. Um, and in fact, that often becomes a way of facilitating some of the kind of worst acting out. And I think that's sort of what Vance is doing. And, you know, it's not to say that like, um, there are particular parts of the population or something that are particularly prone to that. Uh, but rather Vance is kind of offering, I think what he has to offer as a politician is what if we didn't have to think about who we are and where we come from and why we do the things we do, wouldn't that be nice? Isn't that a kind of nice story to tell, a nice way of thinking about any problems we might have as a society that actually we don't really need to explain them? Um, And, you know, that can be very potent. That's a very, I think, very, very kind of threatening phenomenon. I also think it has fundamentally to do with race and racism. Whiteness is, a I mean, and like identifying politically, you know, as white in some way is a kind of form of psychological repression, right? It's a telling a story about who you are that's false, 
there's no such thing as the white race or something like that. Um, and I think that's at the heart of what Vance is doing in some way is finding a new way of describing and enacting a politics of being white um, and of white supremacy and racism ultimately uh, that involves just that kind of psychological avoidance. We are speaking with historian Gabriel Winan, who posted the N Plus One magazine article, J.D. Vance Changes the Subject, a Senator from the Unconscious. Check out Gabriel's book from 2021, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. You can hear our conversation with Gabriel on that book by going to our website, thisishell.com, and searching on his last name, Winant, W-I-N. A-N-T. You write that Trump, as Vance's great white father stand-in, shares with Vance an uneasy orientation toward his upbringing, a tendency to generalize the unhappiness of his own childhood into a theory of the world. One grew up in obscene wealth, a consummate New Yorker, but not an urbane one. The other, a middle class or poor, he describes himself both ways, son of the small town Midwest. Each sensed himself to be out of his rightful place, although pointing in opposite directions, Trump wanted in, to, in on Manhattan, a gilded future that he attained. Vance identified backwards with his grandparents' roots in Kentucky and understood the family's presence in Ohio as a fall from grace. Is that who they both represent, people who do not feel like they are in their rightful place, people who feel they have not been dealt a fair hand or got the same opportunities or had an equal chance as others? Do they they represent those who feel they were ripped off from fulfilling an American dream that they were promised and, considering white privilege, they were guaranteed to have? Yes, I mean, they both represent that. And to be clear, right, lots of people perfectly reasonably feel that they have been ripped off and that they have not gotten something that they deserve. That's true, right? That's our unequal society doles that out totally, you know, wantonly and cruelly. Um, What Trump and Vance both have to offer, though, is um, a way of thinking about that disappointment that uh, lets you that lets the person lets their listener or their follower uh, relate to that disappointment in a self-protective way, um, and this is I think a little bit psychologically complicated um, because the self-protection might actually still involve a well I didn't work hard enough or well I you know I wasn't good enough but even that is actually a self-protective move. Um, because what it does is it shields your overall sense that uh, you were owed this thing. It's rightly yours. And maybe you failed to get it, right, uh, because of your problems and you know, th- your failures. Maybe you failed to get it because the system failed um, failed you in the sense that someone stole it. But the expectation was right and just. And the expectation being right and just is a story about how capitalism right and just, in fact, right? And for all advance and Trump pretend to be these kind of populist figures, this is ultimately what they're doing, is they're saying to the white section of the working, or a white section of the working class, capitalism is right and just, and it can deliver for you. Um, And if it's not delivering for you, it's either because something wrong with you, 
or because you know like a jewish billionaire like george soros ruined it for some reason um and so the self-protection is a protection not of the ego in the sense of like oh i didn't work hard enough rather it's a protection from the much scarier thought that our society is not right and just at a fundamental level the whole organization of it is wrong that the whole organization of it uh is designed for uh ex exploitation and to uh prevent me from uh living a stable life and the only reason i ever thought otherwise was because i was white basically uh that's a much scarier thought and that's the thought that i think vans and trump are sort of designed to keep at bay you mentioned that Vance's explicit argument is that hillbilly culture damaged fatally by lack of personal discipline lowers expectations for children and thereby causes the intergenerational transmission of poverty. If we accept this argument, which we should not, it unavoidable implicates his grandmother and grandfather, mama and papa, in Vance's own childhood trauma and his mother's. Although Vance has summoned this implication, the book is devoted to denying it. Why should we not accept the idea that hillbilly culture is damaged fatally by lack of personal discipline, that hillbilly culture lowers expectations for children and thereby causes the intergenerational transmission of poverty? Why should we not accept that idea, which is at the heart of Vance's book? Well, uh, you know, something that's really struck me reading Vance's book is that all of the things that he has to say about the kind of dysfunctions of hillbilly culture, which he's, he wants you to see is really specific. Um, and, you know, in some ways sort of unintended consequences of good sides of hillbilly culture. That's, that's sort of his interpretation. They're all very familiar from working class communities all over the place. Um, and that tells you that they're not in the first place cultural, really. What they're about, what he sees as these kind of unique pathologies of his community and his family, what they're about are structural forces. They're about um, the kinds of jobs, the, the lack of that that exists, the the availability and unavailability of economic security and the welfare state, and so on. Um, and those kinds of forces uh, are way, way, way more powerful than whatever kind of cultural thing he wants to gesture to and in fact he can't even really explain what he's talking about throughout the book um and he'll say I, I don't mean to repeat myself but he'll say repeatedly well you know maybe this is really kind of about how the jobs are much worse than they used to be that's possible but i don't want to talk about that um he's constantly saying that kind of thing um so you know there's this strange move that he's making all of the time um where he is trying to shift blame onto this thing he calls culture, but he can't really say what culture is in any specifics. He can't really explain what it has to do with, you know, these kind of more material economic type questions. Um, and then, you know, the question of who he thinks is kind of upright and who he thinks is uh, pathological gets totally muddled because he wants to tell a story in which his mother is the villain and his grandmother is the hero the hero because his mother was cruel to him and his grandmother took care of him and looked out for him that seems true um but of course the reason his mother was cruel to him as he says himself in the book is because his grandmother was cruel to her when she was a kid 
Um, and the reason for that is because all these people are struggling to get by, right? They're and they're uh, you know in in an, in a social and economic environment that pr- produces cruelty in a kind of systematic way. And then he kind of just tries to say, okay, but this one's good and that one's bad. And it's just like, uh, again, it's the behavior, it's the psychology of a child. Is it that he did not receive care, so he doesn't believe anybody should receive care? Does he believe that nobody should receive care because it only makes them weak, that caring for the poor, for instance, is the problem, not the poverty themselves itself? What he thinks is that... He- so the care that he did not receive that he's angry about is his mother's, right? His mother uh, was not there in the way that he wanted, you know, and again, you can say who can blame him for ambivalence about his mother who, you know, he had a rough childhood. Um, But his answer to this is essentially my mom should have been forced to take care of me in the way that I wanted. And again, he says this pretty explicitly um, that, you know, he, I mean, explicitly he says women in abusive relationships should stay in those relationships for the sake of their children and women should not have careers they should just be you know homemakers and mothers and parents um and you know his mother left his father his his mother became a nurse um and you know that's how she got addicted uh was through you know access to pharmaceutical uh pharmaceutical at the hospital where she worked um and so his account of that is again, it's not about, um, well, why was it that, uh, you know, it was hard for my mom, my mom was a single mom to get by, right? Why was it that um, things like domestic violence and intimate partner violence, alcoholism might be, rel- you know, relatively more common in places suffering from economic deprivation? It was not, it's not about any of that. Instead, it's about why was my mom mean to me, right? <laughs> and and the answer that he has to give is, well, because she kind of was undisciplined and lazy and had bad willpower. And so what we need is for mothers to be forced to provide care for their children. Uh, and that's sort of the problem that he sees with our society as a whole, instead of, well, we should have so more caring social systems, right? And there's lots of different ways of organizing the care of the young and the old and the disabled and the sick, lots of different ways of imagining how we could do that in kind of abundant ways that don't just have to route it through the, you know, mother-son nexus, right? Uh, that's one That's one way of routing how we take care of people who need care, but it's not the only one. And his insistence that it's the only one is, again, a way that he's telling you what, uh, what he has sort of failed to actually work through and see honestly about himself and his own life. Do you get a sense that Vance hates the working class, that the singular goal, that he believes the singular goal of the working class is to leave the working class, that class solidarity even leads to intergenerational poverty. I do think Vance hates the working class, although I don't think he realizes this about himself. But, you know, I mean, it comes through so powerfully in his book. He's just total contempt and scorn for almost everyone who he knew as a child, again, with the exception, basically, of his grandmother and grandfather. Um and, um, you know, I think that uh, he now, in you know, although he sort of has, has made this supposed kind of pivot in a populist direction, that pivot also 
I think reiterates that kind of hostility toward his own the own his own, the own world that he comes from, because again, he's not actually interested in seeing working class people in any real specificity. He's not really interested in their capacity for understanding their situation, organizing and combating their situation, their possible kind of collective agency. He doesn't seem to believe in any of that, right? He just thinks there are shadowy forces at work manipulating them and ruining their lives. And now he as their champion kind of has to go defend them. But there's no sense that he has of like the power of working class solidarity, which is quite ironic because on like page two of his memoir, his grandmother, whom he loves, says, never betray your class, right? And then his whole license <laughs> is a story of betraying his class uh, again and again and again in grander and grander and grander ways. Um, and just, so just to kind of like put a fine point on it, um, Vance, the, the kind of story, the psychological story of, I've been telling about Vance as someone who won't process his trauma, right? And it has failed to do so repeatedly. Uh, that's a story of someone who can't explain, can't see how he as a kind of, you know, victim of various kinds of, you know, forms of harms as a young person, uh, he can't tell a clear story of, of how he became the adult that he is, who's able to act, right? And instead his actions are kind of like, have this kind of inexplicable kind of hungry, needy quality. And that's the same way that he sees the working class, right? He doesn't see it as able to act he does because he doesn't see any way of really explaining class relations. Like he doesn't see that a class system in which the capitalist class exploits the working class, right? Although he kind of talks about elites and stuff, but that's not what he's saying. And so he doesn't see the working class as something that can kind of come to maturity and in much the way that he can't do also, right? And see its situation and act maturely on its situation, which it has come to understand. That's not something that he grasps as a possibility. And instead he sees the working class like himself uh, as um, kind of a victim that uh, just things happen to it, right? As opposed to a kind of agent. Is what offends Vance the most about the working class, their ability to develop capacities beyond capitalism that are not yet captured by capital, to participate in activities, social reproduction from which capital does not profit or benefit, and the capacity to challenge the violence of capital, the courage and willingness to rise up against it? Does he not like the working class because they dare to rise up against the system he believes deserves nothing but our unquestioning gratitude? I wouldn't put it quite like that. I think that's not a thought he can think. Um, I mean, you know, he has an idea of, uh, so you know, social conflict between elites and or what he would call like regular people or something like that. Um, but uh, I don't think he's capable of actually seeing working class people as being able to uh, assert themselves, right? And again, that's what he, like, he thinks that's in some way, like, that's because they're fundamentally pathologically broken um, and they can't assert themselves because they, uh, you know, they're just victims and and never actors. Um, and so it seems to me that, you know, the kind of, where his kind of contempt and scorn for his own origins comes in 
right? It's not in a kind of stay in your place thing on the explicit level. Rather, it's a, well, obviously, you know, you're never going to be able to understand what's going on and stick up for yourself. That's how he sees it at the explicit level. But I think un unconsciously, uh, it, it's then sort of closer to what you were saying, where um, he's turned his own kind of um, unhappy, you know, experiences and the rage that comes from them into a rage at the people he claims to represent. And that is what is so twisted about him. One last question for you, Gabriel. We've been speaking with historian Gabriel Winan, who posted the N Plus One magazine article, J.D. Vance Changes the Subject, a Senator from the Unconscious. Gabriel was on the show back in July of 2021 to discuss his then-just-published book, a book you should check out, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. You can find that interview at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on his last name, Winant, W-I-N-A-N-T. One last question for you, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. I don't know which one of those categories this falls in, but I just like the question. You write, Vance represents the poisonous idea that the very real traumas suffered by the American working class over the past two generations are without structural cause and therefore can be overcome by willpower and self-discipline, that those who fail to do so have themselves or otherwise malicious phantasms to blame. You say this is poisonous, but is this comment, this kind of framing, malicious? Does Vance intend to do harm, and if so, to what end? Yeah, I don't see how we can interpret it any other way. I mean, you know, these questions about intent are always challenging because, of course, you know... Uh, <laughs> Based on motivations, how can you perceive that, you know? Right. Um, but, uh, I think it's clear that Vance, um, well, let me put it like this. The first ad I think that Vance ran in the election last year in Ohio was an ad where he, or an early ad anyway, he looks at the camera and this is how it starts. He looks at the camera and he says, are you a racist? And he gives this little smirk, excuse me. Um, and uh, you know, he then goes on to say, of course, it's not racist to want to, uh, you know, not have your community be transformed by immigrants. Um, that doesn't mean you hate Mexicans. But when I saw him do that ad and the little smile that he gives, as he says, are you a racist? Right. What he's doing is he's saying, go ahead and say yes and no at the same time. Right. Um, and you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't think it's funny. You wouldn't smile if. You thought that, uh, you know, racism is something that might actually exist or should we should actually be worried about, right? If, if some part of you wasn't didn't want to say yes to that, you would not smile at it. Uh, and that's, the, you know, that's what the ad communicates is um, there's a way that you can say, of course, I'm not a racist that communicates your racism. It's exactly the same thing as I was describing earlier about Elon Musk doing all of this, you know, race science and anti-Semitism online or whatever. And then the journalist says, are you, are you anti-Semitic? And he says, no, not at all. Same thing. Um, and that, I think, uh, I mean, I just, I, you know, I think we, that, that we have to see that as profoundly malicious. Whatever, whatever Vance thinks he's doing, I'm sure he thinks in some way that he is sticking up for, you know, the people in the community that he came from. But uh, he is encouraging them to lie to themselves 
he's lying to them. He is trying to generate confusion. Uh, all, you know, that like, that's, that's what his politics is. It's, it's to allow yourself to continue to be confused, to say yes and no at the same time, to not understand why you think and want the things that you think and want. Um, and I mean, that's, it's, that's the politics of fascism. It's what it is. It's, you know, it's what it looks like as it rises. Gabriel, thank you so much for being back on our show. And as you were just describing, that definitely describes a senator from the unconscious. Historian Gabriel Winand has been on to talk about his N Plus One magazine article, J.D. Vance Changes the Subject. Make sure you check out his 2021 book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry, and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. Get used to me sending you interview requests, Gabriel. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for being on today. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Take care. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell of what you just heard from Gabriel on the disturbing worldview of J.D. Vance, which is shared by far too many of your neighbors and people in your community. If that reminded you that, yes, this really is hell, and that Hillary Clinton would have made a horrible president, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time and podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Will, please remind us what this week's question from hell is and share with us the rest of our listeners' responses. This week's question from hell is why is this hell? Why is this hell? I'll tell you why this is hell, because I didn't post the question from hell <laughs> until Tuesday. Uh, I finally I put a timer. I have a reminder now on my tablet. Tells me 10 a.m. Sunday, post the question from hell. I'm sorry. Harnessing all that uh, high-tech, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know. Eight-year-old, eight-year-old tablet. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Riley J. over on Patreon says, I watched The Patriot in U.S. History Class. <laughs> Sad face. Lord. Have oh, you seen that movie, the we, Mel Gibson movie? I sure have. Oh. It is a steam. It's all. It's so bad, it's actually kind of fun to watch sometimes. It is. Uh, the villain, like, the uh, Dragoon, the German mm-hmm. Dragoon, I can't remember what that actor's name is. He shows up in tons of movies. He's Yo. ridiculously cartoonishly evil. Oh, he's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he's based on a, he's a composite character. Of Seven million people. Exactly. <laughs> um, Lil Drippy Deedees says... Clearly a dentist. Clearly a dentist. Morality or profiteering, which pays our student loans? <laughs> wow. Bruce S. says this is hell because Homo sapien sapien is besotted with his brain brain. <laughs> I like that one a lot. Oh, There's a ring to it. Let's see. And besotted. Besotted. <laughs> Putting besotted Under, into the sentence. Underutilized word. It is. Uh, on Twitter, eatfart69 says, because Chuck said so. Uh, uh, stay classy, eatfart69. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie K says, the crappy colonial crony capitalist climate crisis. Sure. It's a tongue twister. <laughs> it is a good one. Very alliterative. Yeah. Um, it sure as hell is on fire, though. Okay. And then over on Facebook, we have two responses. And they are from Ronaldo, uh, people, exclamation point. And then. (laughs) (laughs) At least he's not a misanthrope. (laughs) Exactly. And then uh, Adam A says, 
in brackets, shrug. Better than Texas. Jesus <laughs> criminy. Any more? That's it. All right. So the answers I liked most were, and will help me select this week's winner. Uh, Public Universal Comrade saying, because of all that stinky arse capitalism. Erica X saying, other people. <laughs> Erica, you should meet my friend Ronaldo. I think you two would get along very <laughs> yeah. well. Uh, unfortunately, I think Erica is in. Kyrgyzstan, so I don't know if that's going to work. Uh, Chris F. says, I don't know for sure, but I know the French have a lot to do with it. (laughs) Angie says, well, there's no This Is Hell Bong in the merch store. It's the itch that you (laughs) couldn't yet be scratched. Uh, Old Grouch saying capitalism. Uh, Jeez, I really like Bruce's answer. Scott Mm -hmm. A. saying, because I don't pay enough attention when people win, and now I don't know how to claim a tote bag. (laughs) Kim G. saying all the sick burns. Low commotion. Low commotion. Because we didn't clap, and that was at the Jeff Bush zinger that he had for Donald Trump that then fell flat on its face during a debate. So, I don't know. What do you think is, what's your favorite answer to this week's question from Al? I'm pretty sure I know which one mine is. Hmm. It's a, it's a strong field. I think I, I, like I got to go with the brain brain. I know, I got to go with brain brain like, too. It, it's, it's been ringing in my head since I <laughs> yeah, read it. Yeah, and my slight dyslexia made, made me think it said, this is hell because Homo sapien sapien is besotted with Brian Brian, and yeah. I didn't know who Brian was. <laughs> Two, two first names. Two first names. You can't trust people with two first names, Absolutely Will. Absolutely That's why you and I have normal last names like Ippen and Mertz. That's right. <laughs> There's no way that's going to be a first name. So, Bruce S., you are the winner of this week's question from hell. Congratulations. Just tell us which piece of merchandise you want. Email what you want to us at this is Chuck at thisishell.com. And then uh, oh, also send us your mailing address, obviously, and we'll get it in the mail to you post-haste. My answer to this week's question from hell, why is this hell? Well, among other reasons, because vacations are no longer holidays from work, but an acceleration of how much work you have to do before and after you take a much-needed and deserved break from your labor. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. We truly appreciate it. Keeping it real. Real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, please subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams weekly and is podcast shortly after the same place. Patreon.com slash This Is Hell. This week on Patreon, white dudes really bum me out. Or at least they have been lately here on This Is Hell. First, they're telling me that the rich are going to barricade themselves on island fortresses so they can experience the high life while the rest of the planet burns during climate change. Then they're saying the only way we can stop planetary destruction is by ending globalization, which ain't going to happen, at least in our lifetimes, unless something cataclysmic happens, and that won't be good either. Next, they're saying that the whole nightmare is fueled by colonialism, which never stopped, and then that colonialism was privatized, which made it worse. And finally, that Whitey is in denial of the whole damn thing, and would rather believe in ridiculous conspiracy theories than have any structural analysis of capitalism. Yep. White dudes have been bumming me out. However, Matt Kennard, definitely a white dude, did mention the 2003 book, The Corporation, and how despite it being 20 years old, it's still a very important work when it comes to the rise of corporate power. So we're playing an interview from 2003 with filmmaker whose documentary by the same name 
the corporation, based on the very same book, won many awards and is still, uh, despite its age, very timely. So we're going to be playing an interview from 2003 with the filmmaker, award-winning filmmaker of the award-winning film documentary, The Corporation, Jennifer Abbott. We'll be playing that during Patreon tomorrow, Thursday. Uh, Matt was on, as you might remember, with uh, Claire Provost to talk about their book, The Silent Coup, about corporate takeovers. So he was mentioning this from 20 years ago, and we're going to be playing it this weekend. But the only way you can hear my problem with white dudes and to talk about the history of corporate dominance is by subscribing to This Is Hell at Patreon, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do become a subscriber, you get all sorts of stuff. You get first access to, or, yeah, first access to the question from hell. Uh, you get to ask me questions from hell that are then asked to me during the Patreon podcast. You get a discount on all of our merchandise. You get access to all of our Patreon podcasts, which are searchable, so you can find each and every one of our interviews with Howard Zinn or Noam Chomsky. All you have to do is just search on their name, and you can find those interviews. That's at patreon.com slash thisishell. Will, who are our guests on next week's show? Next week, we have Trevor Jackson, who wrote the Baffler Magazine article, Overproduction and Its Discontents, Capitalism's Inherent Predilection for Excess. You know what I found weird about that article, and you uh, also sent it to me, Mm -hmm. is that, you know, we've been talking about degrowth and how economic growth, the constant economic growth is really bad for the planet, but nobody ever talked about overproduction. I just found that weird that that's a word that never came up. It is strange. And that used to cause a lot of our uh, economic depressions. Yeah. Uh, Trevor uh, is assistant professor of economic history at George Washington University. His first book, Impunity and Capitalism, The Afterlives of European Financial Crises, is out now from Cambridge University Press. And then we have Magda Tetter, author of Christian Supremacy, Reckoning with the Roots of Anti-Semitism and Racism. Magda is professor of history at the... Schwidler, uh, Schwidler, Schwidler, Schwid- yeah, Schwidler. <laughs> All right. All right. At the Schwidler chair, she's Schwidler chair. <laughs> wow, I'm having trouble with yeah. that. In Judaic studies at Fordham University, she's author of Blood Libel, on the tri- on the trail of an anti-Semitic myth which won the National Jewish Book Award. We will also have this week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi and Jeff Dorchin will be doing a moment of truth. I don't think we are going to have a past inside the present next week with uh, Sebastian Vupper. He will be back in a couple of weeks. A huge thank you to all of this week's producers, Dan Kugler, Will Ippen, thanks to Jeff, thanks to Kat, thanks to Ronaldo, Sebastian, Dan Hill, uh, Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, Theron Humiston, just because. Talk to you tomorrow thursday on patreon by the way the magnet teeter uh, book was suggested to us by listener tom g thank you tom for suggesting it talk to you tomorrow on patreon when it's all about depressing white dudes in a 20 year old talk on an award-winning film about the history of corporate dominance there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows that's by sitting down in the lotus position turning your palms towards the sky focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words everybody's stupid my demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>